Welcome to the Esports Insider Podcast in partnership with Mishkondorea. with Mishcon Dereya. I am your host, Ori, and this week I'm joined by three industry-leading guests once again, and we're going to be discussing everything around visas from players to talent from both a team perspective and also from a tournament organiser perspective. On my left, I have the wonderful Kieran. Tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, hello, I'm Kieran Holmes-Darby, Managing Director and Co-Founder of XL Esports. And next up is Clem. Uh, I'm Clement Murphy. I'm Marketing Manager for Faceit the world's leading competitive gaming platform. They pay me to say that. <laughs> and you, yeah, Clem has a background in all things tournaments, so knows quite a lot for his sins. And last but not least, we have Maria. Hi, my name is Maria Patsalos. I'm a partner at Michigan Dorea. I specialize in immigration and I'm in the sports group. Lovely. Well, as you can see, we have people with infinitely more knowledge than me. <laughs> but um, I mean, esports is a very, very young industry, as we all know. But the wonderful thing about it is it's it's very, very global from from grassroots all the way up. Um, I guess even if we look at kind of grassroots UK orgs, they have players playing that might be Swedish or whatever. So when when we look to make that more local, then obviously with that comes a lot of issues that people probably don't take into account. And we're lucky to have Kieran from an Excel standpoint. I assume you've dealt with these issues in the past and ongoing now with LEC, I assume you're also dealing with them. Tell us a little bit about the process and how much hassle it really is for the team owner. Yeah, I suppose when um, when esports was this you know global phenomenon and, and we were slightly smaller, less professionalised and without any infrastructure, it's much easier to pick up players from all over the continent um, and you know they would play from their homes. So visas weren't really an issue ever um, and you were largely competing in online tournaments or perhaps competing in a tournament in Europe as a one-off, which was a much easier thing to deal with. Um, now with you know us being sort of making the claim for the UK's leading esports team and really trying to brand ourselves as that and push that. We want to have infrastructure here in the UK, of course. So we've opened up our new HQ in Twickenham Stadium. That's where our players our players will be based in Twickenham in, in houses separate from the facility and be training there every single day. So there comes the problem of, you know, we need to get all of these players into the country to work as esports professionals, which no one has done from a you know on a long-term perspective in esports yet um, because no one's based an esports team from around the continent in the UK um, so this is now you know a massive topic for us and something that we're battling almost it feels like on a daily basis where we're recruiting um, North American people from a you know coaching standpoint and analysis standpoint not just the player standpoint um, and I think, yeah, as, as you rightly outlined, there are there are troubles in the UK because players are not recognised um, like sports players. So what do they class as? They're doing a profession that is highly skilled. A lot of them are highly remunerated for that um, skill set. And, you know, how do you class them? Well, the way to class them at the moment is as entertainers because they're often streaming. They're often on camera um, for, you know, when they're playing in their tournaments and they are entertainers in every right. Um but that's not, you know, that's not the cleanest um, explanation of what they do. It's just one that fits at the moment in the UK. Much easier in, in America where they had the P1 visas and much easier even in Germany where they're more recognized now by the home office. So, um, yeah, we've had, we've had a lot of issues. And I guess from, from a risk of perspective, 
is that something you've seen? Is esports like anything you've seen prior? Um, because obviously, I guess football is very much more established. But I mean, this is going to sound ridiculous. But for example, my experience of football manager, and I try and sort of sign a Venezuelan superstar, <laughs> and I have to apply for a work permit, and he gets denied one. Um, is it looked? I mean, this is a guy that's that's going to get paid thousands a week compared to I don't know trying to bring someone over for an esports purpose. Um, in a lot more recognised field and they can get declined work permit. So, like, how does it work in esports? And is there anything that you've worked on prior that kind of fits a similar mould? Yeah, I think we have to um, remove football from the comparison because football is in a different league in, in every sense of the word. Um, the, the money involved, obviously, the regulation, uh, the, the, the tier two work permits that are available and tier five. So I would, re- I would um, compare esports to kind of early days darts. Okay, so darts, as we all know, was only um, uh, made a professional and uh, governing regulated sport in 2005, which is fairly recently. Um, so we still see kind of some comparisons with with uh, darts and maybe even snooker. Um, so th- the comparison is whereby darts players and snooker players are often traveling around the world playing in tournaments. Um, they're not necessarily always based in one country. Um, and that's where I see the comparison with esports players. Um, so I know that, for example, you know, face it, organize these uh, uh, tournaments and um, we have players coming in for those. That's okay because we, they can come in as visitors um, under the visit visa rules, um, uh, people, sports people, whether they're uh, regulated as sports people or not, are able to come to the UK and play in one-off tournaments for prize money. They're not allowed to be paid uh, full-time in the UK, but they can do that. So that's where I see the comparison. Um, And we've had issues in the past where we've had calls from darts players who are stuck at the border saying, you know, that the immigration officer isn't letting us in. Uh, And I say, "Well, well, how long have you spent in the UK over the last year? And they say something like, you know, eight, nine months. I say, well, there's, there's your problem. A visit visa is only for six months of any given year. It doesn't mean that when you leave the UK, it resets the clock and you can come back in, which is a common misconception. Um, so yeah, I would say the comparison is darts, but as, as you said, the major problem is the fact that esports is not yet regulated. It doesn't have a governing body, and therefore the Home Office don't recognise it as a sport, and that's where the issue is. Mm-hmm. From a tournament operator perspective, obviously, for example, you just look at Face It PUBG, right? You have an obscene amount of players coming over competing in this truly global competition. Um, do you do you guys, does the responsibility ultimately lie with the team owners? Do you guys offer support in that sense? Or what kind of, how, do, how does it look from a tournament, tournament operator perspective when you have so many different countries, so many different nationalities all coming in? Yeah, I mean, frankly, it's it's a lot of work. There's, there's a lot of that we have to do on our side. It, it, it obviously, the ultimate decision rests between the, the players and their passport situations and the the home office. But uh, we do a lot of work in writing recommendation letters, writing think, clarification, uh, supporting material to for, to help their applications, and that that does help on a lot of occasions. Uh, but but for instance, you were you were talking about the um, the Face It Global Summit PUBG event we recently did. Um, the, we had a Vietnamese team that was qualified who didn't make it, couldn't come because of visa issues, had to be substituted, and and that's ultimately the 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 biggest like heartbreak in in these stories is you have these teams and these players who they work really hard, they 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 work at their their game, their craft to to compete at the highest level. And then ultimately they're denied by something that's completely out of their control. They've they've done the hard part. They've competed. They've beaten everybody else. They've got to this major international tournament with big money on the line. This is a you know a career defining moment, especially for 
you know teams like uh, in in PUBG where it's uh, the the ecosystem's a lot less developed than Counter Strike, for example. So it's 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 a big deal and something that I think the UK need, needs to kind of get a handle on quite quickly. Um, I mean, it was recommended in UK in the UK white paper. And the fifth point on their list was to to, to re-examine the visa process because it it's it's caused a lot of hassle for us and as tournament operators, we're trying to put together this. Um, merit-based tournament which are the with the best teams in the world and we're looking at these really weird creative solutions to try to mitigate some of those problems so for example with the the face it major last um, September we had um, the we were the first tournament organizer to in counter-strike host all of the minors in the same place the qualifying tournaments to the major so to in doing so we hosted all the qualifiers ourselves in the same country that the major would be hosted in. It was the first time that was done. And we had a few people who had qualified to the minor who were rejected. But in previous years, those people would only be rejected when they had qualified to the major. So there's still that a level of heartbreak, but it's much less in than someone who had gone through the whole minor process to qualify to the major and then make it to the, and and that that has now become part of the, the the major pitching process. That's something that is specified by Valve to say this is what we want you to do to try to mitigate those risks. Okay. And that happens a lot in a lot of different places. Can I just ask a quick question? Do you know why the Vietnamese team were rejected? Uh, I don't. No. I don't. Yeah, um, it's interesting to see what the Home Office is saying. Yeah. Um, it may be just on an individual basis they don't believe that they're visitors, but it, mm-hmm. it's, it would be interesting to kind of understand what the issues are specifically. Yeah, I mean, we work with um, uh, an agency which helps us to overcome some of those problems and can navigate um, some of those some of those things, and it helps us to prepare each, uh, helps us to work with the teams to prepare their applications to make them as strong as possible. Um, I don't know what the case was specifically with this team, but we find that it's mostly teams from CIS, Russia, um, and the and the East that that kind of that have these most of these issues. Yeah. So Serbia certainly has some problems as well. I mean, there's a really talented up and coming League of Legends player called Joppa, who we were looking at signing at one point, um, and you know, one of the, the 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 on his on his pros and cons list, one of the big cons was this is going to be really difficult to get a visa for him. Um, he's just been denied. His team made the EU Masters Finals uh, hosted by ESL in Leicester um, a couple of weeks ago, and he was denied a visa to get in, so he couldn't play. Um, which is a you know is a, is a great shame, and, and it's been something that's plagued his specific career his whole life, um, being a Serbian national. I don't know the specifics around it, but I know it's very difficult. So. Mm. And this is something that, um, from a tournament operator perspective, we we know this stuff happens, and we try to plan our events in such a way that means that we get the best competition that we can now it's if the longer that this sort of thing goes on and the, the more issues that we have around getting players into and involved in the uk the more we are likely to look at other options for for visas for instance if we know we're running a game that has a lot of players in kind of eastern europe and russia that are, are going to be the, the top level competitors we might consider doing that in somewhere else purely because of the amount of issues we know we're going to accomplish it's it's got to that stage where we're actually kind of as a british based company we're thinking about hosting tournaments elsewhere because of these issues um yeah. and yeah. It, it's one of those things that that has been addressed in other countries america we were just saying the p1a visa process they approved their first esports player in 2013 so that's you know 6 years ago now and the uk still hasn't kind of caught up to that yet yeah, I think it's. I think it's interesting. I know you, what you said about the minor and the major process, and it's interesting because that's Valve, 
And then if you look at the Dota circuit, you have the last qualification spot for a major determined by a minor, mm-hmm. which is two weeks before, and it's held, one's in Croatia, one's in France. Yeah. And it creates yeah. umpteen problems, but this is... I mean, we've got examples of XL who are in the NEC, Riot are very, very well organised, very well scheduled, you know when MSI is, you know where Worlds is, you know the location, so you can start planning around that. Um, the open ecosystem obviously breeds a lot of problems in the sense that literally it could be anywhere. Valve have only just announced the dates of TI, which is their biggest tournament in the world. Um, so yeah, a lot of stuff comes with the danger, I guess, of the open ecosystem. Um, is is it different when you then take players to... So say, yeah, you've got your players, they're registered to play here. You're then taking your players to go and play, especially in open ecosystem tournaments. Dota, you have events from Manila through to the States, through to Brazil. How does that work? What What is the process then for getting your players to be able to go and compete elsewhere? Well, from a from a tournament organizer perspective, we've just run Face It Global Summit. Um, that was uh, had had feeder tournaments from um, organized from different regional competitions. So that was you know the PEL, the European guys, the different PUBG leagues that are run um, across the world. And we had to for some of them that were. Later on in the process, I mean, we had our final European qualifiers that were, came two weeks before the event started, which was, um, you know, difficult in itself. But for the other regions that were that were quite close, we had to ask players that had not yet qualified to start applying for visas. You know, so we had backups upon backups for players because we knew that there was going to be this kind of attrition of teams that even the top rated teams who would come and play at the tournament as, you know, number one seed from their region would not be able to qualify. So we would be looking at what's the second option, what's the third option, what's the fourth option. And ultimately, that's something that's completely out of our hands, you know, planning from a planning perspective. Yeah, I mean, gen- generally, the, the visiting visa is a little bit easier um, than than trying to base someone in a country for an extended period of time. So we haven't had that many issues traveling. Um, but yeah, certainly getting players to be either based in uh, in the UK or Germany for the whole of the LEC split when you have a you know a local LAN league for nine weeks or 20 weeks of a 52-week year, um, that's when it's been a bit more of an issue. Um, thankfully, I think we're just about over the line now and, and we've kind of got there with everything, but it certainly wasn't an easy process. Um, and it would have been a lot easier if there was there was some recognition for, for esports for sure. Uh, Maria, I just wanted to ask you from from like a legal perspective, obviously you talked about at the start, you mentioned kind of the perspective, the, the, the regulatory aspect. Um, given that we're talking about so many different IPs um, and that's the fundamental with a legal perspective when you look at anything in esports, the fact that the IP ultimately lies with a Valve who literally might say, well, I'm not touching this, I just have the game, I have the rights to the game, but you do what you want. How difficult does that make it, um, especially when you're talking to kind of the government or whatever? What, is that why they're so reluctant? Or what do you think the reasons are? Yeah, I mean, I think that is part of it. How do you regulate um, a sport, in inverted commas, like this, where there are so many IP issues and, and the IP holders are not willing to give up their IP or have it meddled with in any way, which is understandable. Um, so how do you regulate it? That, that is the problem, um, because the, the way the Home Office works is every sport that they recognise has one governing body. Um, and so and, and the governing body is listed on the Home Office website, and that's the only way that you can get sports people in under Tier 2s and Tier 5. Um, so how is that going to work with these sports? That, that is one of the major problems. I don't know if anyone here has any ideas on how to resolve that. Yeah, I, I mean, for, for us, this is why I'm quite 
uh, vocal in my in advocating the the model that Riot Games builds with the long term partnership, or sometimes called franchising. It's not really a franchise system. It's kind of a misnomer, but it's easier for everyone to understand if you say franchising. So um, those models for me, from I mean, I could go for days and talk to you about the commercial benefits of it as well. But just purely from a structural point of view, and and this whole visa process, you have a governing body. I mean, yes. There are some issues with the governing body also being the IP owner, um, but at least you have a body to talk to who you know whose best interests are at heart. So we we deal with Riot as both the IP holder and and the regulator, and Riot are a lot more hands on than your Valves of the world, which would make the conversation with the Home Office a lot easier. Um, than it would if you were running a professional Dota but or does it, does it matter team. that it's a commercial entity with commercial at heart that does that cause issues with the home office I can imagine you yeah. look at most the of the associations that's, right that's the issue the independence there, there, there is there is issues there yeah there's no doubt about it but at the end of the day you know when there is someone who owns the game that person's going to be at the table um if they want to be at the end of the day. I mean, you know, with someone like Valve, maybe they don't want to be at the table, but someone like Riot Games is always going to be at the table. Um, and maybe one day they have to separate their regulating arm from their, you know, IP ownership arm. I'm sure that's a conversation that's already ongoing, but right now we we certainly have a, you know, we have a great relationship with them and they're really good at regulating their league because they are doing it for the benefit of the, you know, the longevity of the league at the end of the day. So, yeah, so do, do you think it's, it's kind of the home office? Do we think it's the government being slow to adapt given that we've seen it in other countries? Do you think you're going to see, I assume, I mean, I haven't dealt with home office personally, but I assume as with most things, there's probably red tape, it's a little bit slow, everything is rather archaic. I did do tax law and the fact that Tony's book was going up to here for no reason, given the half it is literally scribbled out, um, kind of sums up my experience with law. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, is that is that is it kind of the stubbornness, the red tape, and given everything else that's going on in the UK, I'm, I'm not sure it's probably top of the agenda as well. Yeah, I mean, my, my love affair with law lasts a little bit longer than yours, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we as a nation are a little bit stubborn to change in general. Um, you know, I think this is only going to get worse with the possible political situation of the UK in the future. Don't want to go into that. Um, but, we can touch that. you know, <laughs> we have British companies here. You know, yeah, I mean, that certainly will, that certainly will affect, I mean, how it affects it is, is open to debate right now, but that certainly will affect it. We do have some individuals, some MPs now recognizing esports. Um, massive shout out to Ben Greenstone, who's been brilliant for us and, and helping us navigate that whole system because it's not something that we know well at all. Um, and he does know it very well. So, um, yeah, there are now members of parliament and, and members of the, of the of the government that are recognising esports and at least having the conversation, mm-hmm. um, which is certainly helping when applications come in and esports is is on the list and everyone's kind of you know what, what on earth is this? At least people know what it is now. Um, yeah, and I think it's a bit of a broad bucket to to classify the whole of esports as a sport. You know, there's, that's there's the it's so yeah. it's so diverse, it's so global. We don't have a national team. We don't have like you know, we it's it's this kind of really weird nebulous thing. And I, I, I but going back to your point on League of Legends, I don't think it was a um, a coincidence that the first esports player to be offered a P1A visa in America was for, was a League of Legends player. Yeah. I mean, I'm and you know all of the quotes you read around articles and that are from people at Riot who are saying you know how how important this is and yeah. that from a, um, a an organizational perspective that shows 
the, the right are so kind of top to bottom in their esports stuff and they control everything from the development of the game to you know the esports tournaments that happen so that makes it much easier for a government to deal with one body rather than to deal with multiple and so i think that the ultimately the the government needs to kind of decide set some criteria what is what classifies a big enough tournament or a big enough esports tournament to 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 qualify for these type of visas we from within the esports space need to help them to do that and to decide amongst ourselves ultimately we need to sit down and have a conversation about what is an important esports tournament what is one that is worth classifying at what at what stage does an esports player turn from being uh, an amateur to being a professional worthy of the sportsman visa right we we need to we need to help the government to decide that but they need to set some criteria i did read the american criteria which is you know they have monetary things they have um certain references to sponsors such as coca-cola is one of the ones that's referenced so if there is a big enough sponsor involved in an event that that helps the process so all of these things that that kind of legitimize an event and legitimize a player's uh, I guess uh, uh, on an individual basis them as a sports person mm-hmm. or them as a um, uh, someone who qualifies for this kind of license that we, we need to help the government to set that stuff up and I think that what you're talking about Ben Greenstone's involvement with um, some of the, the parliamentary sessions um, those are all very helpful um, but I think that yeah we, we need to keep getting ourselves involved in that and, and helping the government to understand what's going on we need to be yeah. careful not to give Ben too many shout outs no that's true <laughs> it might it, go is, to his it head. will go it will go to his it head it will go to his um, head I figure I'll have to see him in Birmingham in a few weeks so well, there'll be, be more shout, shout outs if he sorts this visa stuff yeah exactly <laughs> but we I mean we, we had a conversation just before this Ollie about what's a tier one esport and how on earth you even classify that you know, um, there's tier lists going on around social media at the moment, and everyone's arguing. No, my it's very esports. Subjective. Yeah, my esports better than your yeah, esports. Yeah, yeah. But this is where the danger is for me for esports such as Dota and Counter Strike and things like this that are so heavily unregulated and uncentralized. Is that or decentralized? Perhaps that is going to affect the competitive integrity of those esports going forwards. Because if it is that the top players can't get visas to play in the big tournaments. That massively harms the competitive integrity. So even if it's, you know, just from a structural point of view, maybe these esports do need to be looking at centralizing the model, partnering with teams a bit more um, if they want to see uh, if they're serious about the longevity of their esport. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very, very odd from the, I mean, we can do this debate separately completely because Dota and Counter-Strike are theoretically two, if not the longest standing esports. Exactly, yeah, yeah. But um, the fact that it's a complete free-for-all, I can imagine from a legal standpoint. Um, I think think what you were saying before about collaboration and sitting down with the Home Office is the key because I think there's a a big misunderstanding around esports and and yes, some people do kind of get it, but most of them don't. And I think because there are so many different types of sports um, and games out there, then it's hard to, to get your head around it and I think comparing it to the to, to the current sports regulations that we have for sports people um, it doesn't fit into that square box so there's no way you're ever going to fit into that box because what you classify as being regulated what about faces tournaments that's separate it doesn't work so where is the regulator it's not an independent person or independent body rather uh, like we have with the FA and like we have with all the other sports so it's it has to be a different model a new model that mm. works for you guys but also works for the home office so it is about sitting around the table and, and, and fashion have you seen have you seen any kind of i guess lower 
like lower tier in terms of viewership sports with yeah. that have had similar. Yeah, so I um, we've seen it with kind of lower level um, uh, driving. So okay. uh, whether it's kind of pre karting and like Formula Three, kind of that level, where basically the home office have delegated to the sponsors, to the governing bodies, um, the idea of determining what is a, an elite player. Um, and as you said before, who determines what's the top? Uh, game and player so they do that by identifying the governing body and then they make them write the rules okay so makes sense yeah exactly Um, so they're the experts so we've had this with one of the lower kind of driving um, uh, regulators and we helped them kind of you know, prepare the guidance, and we had to sit around the table with the Home Office. It was a collaborative affair. Um, you know, they, they wrote the guidance. The Home Office came back. It was kind of toing and froing. And I see that's how this can move forward. It's the only way: uh, sit down around the table um, with the Home Office and 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 you know, explaining the intricacies. Um, this also happened with. Um, I'm sure everyone's aware. I don't want to talk about darts all the time, but it, it's a good <laughs> example with the split in darts, uh, with two different kind of. Um, uh, bodies, as it were, um, uh, uh, occurred there. Now, the Home Office only recognised one of them, and that caused the problem. So we had both of the representatives sitting around the table with the Home Office trying to thrash that out. That wasn't resolved, because the Home Office say there's only one governing body per sport. Mm -hmm. So how do we work out for esports? It has to be per esport, right? So it has to be one governing body per esport, like it is per sports. So therefore, it's going to be, it's going to lean heavily on the publishers to sort their acts out in in this vein, because they're the only ones that can and they're the only ones that actually have the right to go and do it and it doesn't seem to be a problem in Germany with the home office there working very closely with Riot Games out there in order to sort visas for their you know for their competition so I don't see why it should be a problem here when you know Riot Games also have an office here in the UK um, for them to go and write the criteria for what is an elite League of Legends player does nothing for the esports industry as a whole, but it does a lot for that specific esport. But then I guess what you're doing is you're trying the um, in that situation you're asking the home office to to, to uh, recognize each individual game when they've only just recognized esports. Yeah. So that's, it's yeah. got to get there. Um, it's it's got to get there. So it's, nothing moves quite the pace of esports. No, of course, of course, but that's where it has to get to, right? Yeah, I, of course. No, I think that that's you know that's where ideally where we want to get to, where where people are recognizing individual players and. By the time we the government catches up, these these people will already be kind of mainstream, right? So there'll be a public recognition before there'll be a governmental recognition, probably. So I think ultimately that it will it will come down to money, right? If a tournament is offering more than five hundred thousand dollars in prize pool, it, does that qualify as an elite tournament? Um, there, you know, you hear all the time about. Um, sorry to refer back to football, but um, they um, the uh, a player, a young player who's had a cap for the national team is more likely to get. A, uh, a visa for to go and play football in England than a player who hasn't. Um, so you're, you'd, you'd end up having either a system of qualifying tournaments or sort of um, tournaments of a sufficient scale that are recognised as like if you've played in a major or you played at Worlds or you've played at in the international, you are more likely to be granted a visa. That that would again require the government to recognise these tournaments as individual things rather than talking to publishers because as soon as you know. We've all heard, heard these stories of people who've sent emails to Valve and just heard nothing but silence, nothing but tumbleweeds, right? And that and that happens, and they're a lot more hands-off than Riot are. And so you'd end up with this kind of first-tier esports, second-tier esports stuff where League of Legends players are getting visas left, right, and center because yeah. Riot is a lot more engaged than Valve. And, you know, 
for, for better or for worse in different yeah. scenarios, yeah, yeah. you might I, not I think, get at some certain developers. It's also it's also people give Valve more of a bad rap because they're they're very very bad at public facing. Like if you talk to Face It and the guys that deal with Valve, Valve are super responsive to Face It, especially when you're submitting RFPs. Yeah, and I mean they're, commercially they're very responsive, but they're developers. They you say know, they say we're a game development company yeah. and we don't care, which is why they've had issues with cease and desist orders on skin gambling sites, and that is another whole legal like minefield <laughs> we can jump into. Um, but I guess kind of to the last topic that I really wanted to touch on is kind of when you look at the ever growing kind of. I was about to call them accessories. Definitely not accessories, but staff that you have on your team. So you have not not only you have your coaches, you might have a yeah. nutritionist, an analyst. Um, does that a does that pose difficulty because you're like, oh, they're a nutritionist, but then they're a nutritionist for an esports team, and they're like, hang on a second, you need a physio for a team that's competing on computers. God knows how that conversation is going to go. And then also, my last thing was. From a tournament operator perspective, and also, I guess, lending on your, we have a lot of commentators that, especially when it comes to Valve tournaments, they're literally traveling and commentating for money on an Esther, which I'm sure is completely wrong. Um, but from a tournament, a tournament operator perspective, you also have that aspect to think about. So, yeah, that's, yeah. that's just take so, it away. <laughs> so, my answer to the first question probably informs the, the second question as well, in that, um, it's extremely difficult if you're, uh, let's use the nutritionist example. Um, thankfully, we have enough experts in the UK that we don't need to be bringing nutritionists in from, from outside of the UK. So that hasn't been a problem we've come across. However, coaches, um, you know, we don't have a massive wealth of ex-professional esports players who are now doing their coaching badges, in inverted commas. Um, sorry for those that, those that are listening. Um, because, you know, because we don't have that many professional players who have come from from the UK, so now we're looking at North America, we're looking at Korea for for coaches, and we're having to get them visas, and that that's happened. That's going on right now with XL, and it's been one of the biggest issues. Um, and if it's backroom staff, if it's an analyst, um, it's almost now impossible because they're not recognised. That that you know their role is not recognised, and they're not entertaining at all. They're not streaming. They're not on screen talent ever. Um, if they're a head coach, it's a little bit easier because they're always on screen when the players are on screen. Um, they're also streaming in, in their spare time. They're an entertainer as well as what they're doing for the esports team. So that's much that's an easier bridge to cross, which I assume for the talent side of things is also easier. But yeah, if we wanted to hire a, a Korean head analyst who is going to crunch the numbers and, and, and smash spreadsheets out day to day, it's almost impossible at the moment. Yeah, I mean, from a from a tournament perspective, um, pretty much most of the people that work on our events are contractors or full-time staff to some degree, and we primarily operate our tournaments in Europe and North America. So speaking from that perspective, that you can go and work very easily in other countries if you're working on a certain thing. You know, Esters can be, you can work on an Esther as a contractor, as a freelancer, as, as someone working for a company. You can you can do that. That's, you know, perfectly legal. So we don't have many problems with that. Um, I think that um, for a, a team's perspective, we do help to try to get as many of the staff or uh, whoever they like to come over and, and, and work with us. So that tends to be much more difficult with um, Asian players and Asian teams, CIS. So from that perspective, if 
you know, we we won't ask too many questions. We will, you know, if they have an extra couple of staff over, we won't. We'll we'll make sure that we've got the players, the the key people, all completely covered. Um, and if they have a couple of extra people with them, then that's their responsibility to sort out ultimately. But we will do as much as we can to help them kind of get that stuff working. Um, I think from, you know. A lot of the guys that are the, the main talent in main esports games will be traveling a lot. They'll be traveling, you know, most weekends of the year to do one event or another. So they will have a, a fairly sensible system worked out. That usually they all have their own personal lawyers and their own, you know, travel agents that will help them book things like that. So those guys can often take care of themselves at the highest level. It's, I guess, the people that are at that kind of mid-level or lower level who are wanting to go out and work, let's say, a tournament in Shanghai, um, they have to go through a, a whole separate process. So it, it can be tricky from, from those kind of events, but mainly North America and Europe are okay. I can see how that's an issue. I mean, we, we, we help with visas for um, kind of software developers and people kind of working on the tournaments and things like that. But when it comes to all the, the staff around it, like you say, the managers, the nutritionists or um, uh, other, other um, people around the players, that can be trickier um, because, again, with the visas for sports people, um, it's the same visa kind of categories and criteria for their, start, their kind of team. Um, so it's the same gap or hole that exists for the esports players as it does for their team. Yeah, I think from just in general on visa issues, there, if if there are usually when there are visa issues, you're with, and we're thinking about kind of how does that look for us as tournament organisers, and how does that look to uh, you know team owners, uh, to, to the, the fans of a team or of a community of a certain game. Usually, people are very understanding of. You know, every all the fans are very disappointed, obviously, but they're not disappointed or annoyed at the company that's putting them on or at the team. It's very much a kind of sympathetic sort of thing. You, if you have a team that has failed to get a visa, you won't get fans shouting at them or shouting at the tournament organizer. It's a kind of one of those, you know, act of God kind of out of everybody's hands sort of things. So the only real situation that you know, the only real kind of fault there is with um, the, the country that the tournament is in or the, the event that they're going to. So it, it that's that's where the, the usually the kind of anger of the community is directed to say, we shouldn't have any more tournaments in X country because half the best teams in the world yeah, come. You had to go last year ESL literally cancelling. Exactly. I mean, I think Manila is probably, Philippines is quite extreme Yeah, because it was partially drugs. Yeah. Partially, I think there's a couple of Israeli players and it was something to do with Israel and Philippines and relationships. But yeah, so it gets whole, political. A whole... But the, the the Yopper example that I mentioned earlier that was a that was a interesting one because the community didn't know where to turn. It was an event in the UK. The UK isn't seen as a you know difficult place, or, or you know, yeah, maybe yeah. Brexit will change that. But um, you know, it's not seen as a particularly difficult place to uh, to go and work. And Yopper couldn't couldn't come and compete. So then the community were like, "Well, where do we direct all this anger? We're we're fuming about this. We don't know where to go." They're like, "Do we tell ESL off, or do we take his team mad lions <laughs> if it's off?" Out, blame ESL. So they well they they threw the community went all in ESL, and then ESL kind of put out a statement like, "We did everything we could to help." So then they turned all their anger at Mad Lions, the team, and were like, "You clearly didn't do this um, in time." And they were like, "Well, we only found out we qualified here. It takes this long to do it." You know, sure, ma- yeah, yeah. but then it was like, oh, well, should you have preempted it? And should you have, <laughs> you know, and, and it's tough. It is a tough one. But um, yeah, the community didn't really know where to direct their anger, but everyone got a piece of it. That's for sure. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for us as tournament organizers, our kind of reputation lives and dies with the community, right? We, we, yeah. need, we need people to be on our side. And like, the same goes for, for teams, right? You need the fans to be on your side. And 
So ultimately, if we're hosting a tournament, we won't go and do it in somewhere that's notoriously difficult for visas, even if that presents the best, you know, business case or the best kind of opportunity for us, or even if that's where the most of the fans are, because we can't get the teams there and that is a risk for us that we can't take. So, you know, we what we ultimately don't want to do is have the UK, um, especially after Brexit, no one knows what's going to happen there. Uh, we don't want it to be to start getting that reputation of we don't want if we, gonna, we don't want to uh, announce a tournament in the UK if half the teams can't be there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's it's a, it's a really tricky one for us to tackle and something that is really fundamental to making a successful event. Yeah. I was going to ask Maria, kind of always to conclude is I, I would assume you've had a lot of talks around from a sports side as well around Brexit the potential implications um, a lot more so than me who tends to blindly just walk and hope that I don't headbutt a Brexit <laughs> um, but what what have you been advising sports do you do you think there's going to be I mean I would assume that at the top tier it's probably not going to see a massive a massive ramification but do you think we're going to see a big change in attitude towards lower down I think there's going to be a big change all round, actually. Okay. Um, yeah, I think Brexit, although everyone hates it, most people hate it, I certainly do, um, um, is, is awful in many ways. The one way it is good is that the government are listening for a change and they are thinking about making changes um, and they're, they're happy to make widespread changes. Um, so, so for example, in football, we're going to see some big changes going forward. Um, the FA, the Premier League and the Home Office have all sat down and discussed uh, various kind of quite wide-ranging uh, things, which I think we're all going to be quite surprised about. And, and as a result of, you know, if, if that's happening at the top level, then why not that it trickles down to, to, to other um, sports? So I, I do think that, that positive change could come about from Brexit. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there is, um, you know, a reasonable amount of, you know, with with Brexit of kind of, you know, throw it all away and start again. Let's start from the ground up, re-examine what our priorities are in terms of in terms of uh, immigration law and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, the, the bottom line is that losing EU membership means that a lot of European esports players will lose that opportunity to come and play in the UK immediately overnight. And um, I think you're right that there can be this really good opportunity to go in there and say, right, seeing as we're starting afresh now, this is what we want. So there, there. That's the only positive that you can kind of. Put. I bloody hope not, Clem. That's, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> right, we're, we're almost out of time, so I'm going to throw a random awkward question out to wrap it up because I like doing that. So put a put a year on. Well, this will be like a sportsman's bet. A year on when in the UK the government recognises esports on par with, let's say, a darts. We'll go with a darts. The darts. Yeah. 2005 for darts, wasn't it? When did that start? Well, I'm trying to be trying to be trying to be I'm trying to trying to be tactical about my answer. Um, what are we now? 2019. Uh, 2021. 2021. That's what I was going to say. Ooh. I give it three years. I go 2022, and that, that way, if it's high, if it's oh, eight, we should we should probably high. go like early or late. I'm going to go. I think it'll be uh, late 2022. I think there'll be a few years of messing around before we get anywhere like that. We've, we've already had a few, uh, quite a few big UK events here. I think that it will take another one or two wanting to come to the UK and making a big enough splash to, to, to make people sit up and listen. Awesome. Well, thank you all for joining me. It's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much for having us. Um, I've been your host, Ollie, on the ESI podcast in partnership 
with Bishkot Raya. We'll see you next time.